our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Dennis Prager once said, If there is no God, the labels good and evil are merely opinions. They are substitutes for I like it and I don't like it. They are not objective realities. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years. And I'm Jonathan, and that long-term different perspective has its basis in three things, godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 1,012th broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. That's right, and we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. We thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format. We welcome your thoughts via email, website messages, Facebook, our chat board, and any other way you want to get uh, in touch with us. So let's get started. Jonathan, what's the subject matter for today? Well, Rick, our question is, are good and evil meant to coexist? And our theme text is found in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So, are God and evil meant to coexist? For most of us, it's simple. God is good, Satan's evil, they fight, God wins. God destroys Satan and all evil with him, and they live happily ever after. Well... It's all simple and reassuring until we think a little more deeply about it. Where did evil actually come from? If God created all things, then he must have created evil. Why would he do that? If God wins the battle between good and evil and then destroys evil, would he be destroying one of his own creations? If God truly is stronger than evil, then we need to ask if God is even paying attention because one look around our world and it's obvious that evil is handily winning. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's and it's and it's, it's disturbing. So, are God and evil really a compatible pair, opposites that need each other to exist? Could God ever truly destroy evil, or is the destiny of our world and our universe to be subject to both? And folks, as we get started with this, it's always our objective with each subject that we choose to approach it in a biblical and very relevant, practical way. We search out the original context of the scriptures that we cite. We try to find their true meaning and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you something to really think about. Don't forget, simply go to ChristianQuestions.com and click Listen Live for the live audio and chat room. Chat with fellow listeners around the world. And we may even include your comments on the air. Okay, so Jonathan, let's get started with this conversation about God and evil. And, you know, it does sound a lot like good and evil, and that was meant to be. Uh, with a soundbite from the one-minute apologist called, Can God and Evil Coexist? 
And really, this asks more questions than it does uh, in terms of giving answers. Andrew, can God and evil coexist? That's a very tough question. For some, it can't. You have a loving creator and you have all this evil and suffering. Uh, how could they coexist together? Um, and so it is a very tough question. I think we have to look at that God did create us and he does love us. Mm -hmm. And love is mutual. And so you have the creator of the universe who created love and goodness. Um, but love is mutual. And so uh, we do have free will to choose to love him and others. And um, meaning we can choose not to. And I think that's where you see um, evil and a loving creator. So, did he really answer the question? <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> and look, it's a hard question to answer. There's no, no question about it. And we're going to go through a lot of non-answers, if you will, because this is a philosophical issue that you really need to delve into. So, Jonathan, I want to give kind of a basic answer to start with. Okay, and sounds good. It might be surprising to some. You know, are God and evil meant to coexist? I'm going to say absolutely yes, but not the way you think. Oh, <laughs> okay. But yes, they are meant to coexist. How so? Let's get to that. Because we believe that the principles of good and evil are inherent in the creative genius of God. And, and Jonathan, that's a key thing. The creative genius of God has the principles of good and evil in it. The existence of evil as a principle makes righteousness valuable and life sacred. Lucifer, now who was Lucifer? Satan. Okay, Satan before he became Satan was mm -hmm. Lucifer. Lucifer was the first being to take that principle of evil and convert it into action and therefore consequence. And that's the process we have to watch out for as we go through this. Let's, let's just take a quick look at a prophetic view of the thinking of Lucifer from Isaiah 14 verses, parts of verses 13 and 14. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high. And so what happens here is the door now opens for sin. So, and, and here's the thing. It doesn't say that he said in his heart, I would like to ascend to heaven. I would like to have my throne above the stars. It doesn't say, I, I would like to be like the Most High. What is it saying? Rick, it's saying, I will. So He was determined. Right. So there was more than the thought. There was the action. The principle became action. And that's where this all begins to crumble. And that's what we have to pay really close attention to when we look at the idea of God and evil coexisting. Okay? So... To do this, we're going to go to some scriptures in Isaiah. They are six woes. Like It's not like woe, it's woes. <laughs> okay, six woes that were given to Israel in Isaiah that befell them because they were idolatrous. So these six woes are actually literally fulfilled in Isaiah's time, and Israel was punished for these things. But they carry principles of evil, and we want to talk about them in relation to God and evil and how God deals with evil, and can the two coexist? So, Jonathan, we're going to go through these six woes one at a time, see what it entails and how it relates to our conversation about God 
and evil. What's the first woe? Well, Rick, uh, the first woe is the sin of covetousness. Okay, so let's go to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Let's just read verse 8 because that's where the woe is. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room so that you will have to live alone in the midst of the land. Okay, so here it's talking about woe to those who look like, the way the scriptures is, is uh, describing it, is like you take over the place and you create this big, massive plantation-type situation for yourself and you kind of knock everybody else out. You knock out your competition and you become a land baron. And you're in the middle, and you own and control all of the vast acreage on all sides of you. Well, Rick, is abundance wrong? Now, remember Job. Think about that as an example. He had plenty. He had abundance. Was he in, in, the, in an error? Well, and that's a good point, because you know there's a difference between God blessing you with abundance, as in the Old Testament times, versus what this is describing. This looks like it's describing knocking other people out of their place, you know, overriding them, overpowering them, taking over and, and, and overwhelming others to have abundance. That is wrong. To be blessed with abundance? No, not so much, not at all. So, no, there's a difference, and that's a good question. It's not about abundance. A lot of it is how, how do you get there? And, and where your heart condition is. Right, and that's what covetousness really is. And let, let's just add, Jonathan, I know this is off the subject, but in a lot of church systems, the abundance that the preachers have, I believe, is like this in Isaiah. Whoa. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because it is gained on the backs of the poor who are told to give and give and give till they have no more to give. Just a, just a side thought, okay? So you've got this becoming a land baron. What are the consequences of that? Let's read Isaiah chapter 5. Let's the next two verses, verses 9 and 10. In my ears the Lord has, uh, has sown. Surely my house shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain so a lot of acreage yields almost nothing so what do we have then as the result of this covetousness well rick the result is any desire which is beyond your appropriate reach will fail and result in barrenness okay there is a barren uh harvest that was shown in these verses and you know i said before the guy's trying to become a land baron uh, okay, yes. I, that was on purpose. I know, bad joke, but I'm trying to, you know, uh, make it interesting. <laughs> okay, so for Jonathan, for us to start this conversation about God and evil, a key starting point is for man, evil was a powerful and unused principle. Let's look at Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So in that verse, it talks about this tree that God put in the garden for Adam. Now, what does he call it? Well, Rick, it's called the knowledge of good and evil. So the principle of evil, therefore, 
was part of the garden that was created before man got there. That's right. So it was there. The principle of evil was there. And God said, don't touch it, don't use it, it's not for you, at least not now. So that's an important place for us to start. God planted, no pun intended, but planted the principle of evil in the Garden of Eden as a principle. But it wasn't being used. Exactly. Until... And we'll get to that in a minute. Right. All right. Uh, Jonathan, we at Christian Questions have recently subscribed to uh, contributing to Quora, which is a website where people ask and answer all kinds of questions on all kinds of different things. And what we did on Quora is we asked this very question, are God and evil meant to coexist? We got tons of answers. And so throughout the podcast, we're going to quote pieces of some of these answers because they give a variety of, of people's thinking, which we really, really are glad to be able to have. So this first quoting Quora answer to the question, are God and evil meant to coexist, is from somebody named Paul, and uh, he's talking about a philosopher. Go ahead. In his lectures on the philosophy of religion, Hegel gave his unique perspective on the Garden of Eden myth. Hegel compared Genesis 3, 4, and 5 the word of the serpent, with Genesis 3.22, the word of God. And he notes that they said the same thing. Why, then, call the serpent the deceiver? How could he be if God says exactly the same thing word for word? So there is an underground story going on there. In Hegel's view, God tricked Adam and Eve in order to get free will working in the world, just like a startup. Okay, so what he's saying is, well, look, you know, the serpent in Genesis 3 early on says something, and then God repeats what the serpent said. So they said the same thing, so they must be working together. That's the conclusion here. And let me, I can't stand it. We're going to read the verses, but I got to say, that's absolutely ridiculous but we'll, we'll, okay i just i had to say it just 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 up front but let, let's look at the verses that are being talked about because this has everything to do with understanding god and evil so let's go to genesis 3 verses 4 and 5 and this is the serpent speaking the serpent said to the woman you surely will not die for god knows that in the day you eat from it your eyes will be opened you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verses later, in Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 22, this is God speaking, what does it say? Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay, so you say, the serpent says, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil, and then God says, behold, he's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. They must be working together. No, they must not. Not in this sin of Satan's. See, Jonathan, the thing that we have to understand is Satan, as Lucifer, was granted oversight to the garden. That's a whole different study, whole different podcast. He took his responsibility and subverted the will of God. So he was now against God, and he used the truth of God in, as a piece to sell, tell them a lie, to sell them a lie. So Satan plagiarized the words of God. He slandered the will of God. There is no working together here. 
God knew it was going to happen. He allowed it to happen. So now we see evil as more than just a principle. Evil is now also in practice here. And Rick, to go along with the sin of covetousness, that's exactly what Lucifer wanted. Control to take over what God had created. And that's why you have God and evil looking like they're coexisting. And like, wait, wait, how can that be? Well, let's quickly, we're, we're, we're a little shy on time here. The solution, the solution to this whole thing, Jonathan, is a future application. But we're going to go to the solution every single segment because it's so important. What's the solution here? Well, Rick, the solution is God's kingdom will give man opportunity for fulfillment within their human reach. Within their human reach. Remember, it's about reaching towards things that are are appropriate in the context of goodness. Micah chapter 4 verse 4 teaches us that. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So each one will be responsible for taking care of himself under his own vine, under his own fig tree, and this gives us a sense of contentment in the future. This is a prophecy that looks at a contented world in which evil is not being practiced, but I submit to you is still a principle. But the solution is each man will understand the length of his reach and will be able to react appropriately. Now look, we're just getting started here, and that sounds like a pretty simple solution. God's kingdom as a solution and where man started look the same. Is it that easy? Not even close. The problem is, the principle of evil became the practice of evil. Does God just let it run wild and rule the earth? We're excited to be hearing from our growing listening audience at ChristianQuestions.com through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also chat with us now during the live broadcast. You know what would be really awesome? If you can leave us a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It helps us reach even more people. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing. Now, let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. Because God is the God of eternity, he acts in accordance with eternal good. The experience of sin and evil would be allowed to develop on many levels and in many ways. But in each and every case, God would govern it and when appropriate, stop it when any form of evil comes to full maturity. And that's one of the keys here. If we don't understand the idea of God stopping things at appropriate times, we don't understand the relationship of God and evil. So we got we to be clear on that part of this understanding. Let's go back to another uh, quote from Quora. As I said, we're going to be mentioning Quora each segment because some great comments with a lot of diversity of opinion. And we want to put the diverse opinion out on the table. Most of them, Jonathan, frankly, we don't agree with, but you know, it gives people's opinions a, a place to be, at least be expressed, and you get a sense of what people are thinking. So what's this next quote from Cora, ind- individual named Dick, about the question, are God and evil meant to coexist? God did not create evil. Evil exists as a consequence of God's existence. Since God is absolute good, the opposite attribute to good also exists, but only conceptually. The concept does not have power until it is personalified by beings, whether angels or humans. 
it is at that point that evil becomes a problem. So the only way for God to destroy evil would be to destroy himself. Since he can't do that, he will do the next best thing. He will ultimately isolate evil in hell created for Satan and his angels. Okay, warning, Will Robinson. Danger, danger. <laughs> you know, first of all, let's start with that last phrase, okay? The idea of isolating evil in hell created for Satan and his angels. According to Scripture, this is a whole other study, a whole other podcast, but the idea of hellfire and eternal torment is, is not taught in Scripture. Another it doesn't dis- exist. It doesn't. It, it truly doesn't. It is a myth of humanity. And we've done many, many, many podcasts on this, taking scriptures apart, taking history apart to see where it, it cropped up and so forth. So that's one issue. But the other issue I think is interesting, it says, the concept of evil does not have power until it's personified by beings. I would challenge that. The concept of evil had power in the garden as here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't touch it. There was power in the fact that the knowledge of good and evil was supposed to be out of your reach right now. And I think that's an important part of understanding how good and evil work in our world and how God uses evil as an eventual tool to bring, it, to bring its end. And, and we'll discuss how that works. Um, but anyway, interesting thoughts from this quote from Quora, and we really appreciate people taking the time to put their comments out there in relation to these questions. The second woe, is the sin of shamelessness. Okay, so the first woe was the sin of covetousness. The second woe, and these were six woes given to Israel in Isaiah 5 that we're just using as examples to springboard off of to discuss God and his dealing with evil, is in Isaiah 5, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. Let's do 11 and 12 to start. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink who stay up late in the evening, that wine may inflame them. Their banquets, they're accompanied by lair and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. So in that verse, Jonathan, it talks about, you know, those who rise in the morning for what purpose? To pursue strong drink. (laughs) Yeah, partying. (laughs) Now look, there's nothing wrong with celebrating, okay? We want to make sure we understand that. But when that's the objective, and the scripture goes on to say they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, and they go about doing whatever it is they want to do, those are shameless acts before God. And remember, these woes were given to the nation of Israel. They had God's laws. They knew God's laws. They had God's prophets, and they still did these things. They knew better. That's a key part of this whole thing. So you've got this woe of this shameless action in the face of knowing better. And so, so what's, what's the result of, of that woe of the sin of shamelessness? Well, Rick, the result is for Israel, it was exile from God, economic disaster and death. For any who follow this path, it will be the same. And we know that that's the result here because in verses 13 and 14 of Isaiah chapter 5, God lays that out for us. So he says, Woe to those of you who go about shameless activities when you know better and you disregard the deeds of God. And then he says in verses 13 and 14, he describes what you just said. Let's read those verses. 
Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their malt is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure, and Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it. So here we have this sense of um, the, the, this economic disaster. Their honorable men are famished, their multitudes parched with thirst. Sheol has enlarged its throat. And Sheol, what's, what's Sheol? Well, well, that's the Hebrew word for hell, which is, is death, destruction. Right. It's, 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 it's basically being buried, being covered over. You know? so, so what he's saying is death will follow you if you want, you know better, and yet you're doing this, death follows. So God, when he sees evil, especially when, with those who know better, does things, and does things to teach the lesson. And that's one thing, you know, a lot of people say, well, God must not hate evil so much because he certainly lets it reign and rule in the world. Well, that's because it's not yet time for him to rule with that iron rod. We're going get, to get to that soon. But he gives evil a chance to be seen, a chance to be worked with, because now that it's out from the perspective of just being a principle, and it's now a, a practice, he's saying, okay, go ahead, see where it gets you. See where it gets you. And the answer to that is really not very good, Jonathan. <laughs> and and th this is such wisdom from our creator. This is an eternal lesson. Yeah. It's just not for a moment. Right. It's for eternity. Right. And, and that's such an important thing. It's eternal. God's plan is eternal. It takes time. So take a breath, relax, and look, and try to absorb what the plan is teaching us. Let's go to uh, another soundbite on understanding God and evil. Uh, this is from Southern Seminary. Did God create evil? Is And we're just going to drop in on a small portion of this particular talk. I like to point out at this point, other worldviews have much worse problems with the very same question. Put it this way, why is there any evil in the world? Or maybe we could even say it this way. Other worldviews can't even make a distinction between evil and good because their worldview really doesn't permit it. So for instance, many Eastern worldviews refer to evil as an illusion. And in a way, what this does is um, belittles people who are suffering mightily. Or indeed, it doesn't make a good thing any different from an evil thing. Atheists face the same problem. They may be able to say, I don't believe that is a good thing or that's a bad thing. But their worldview doesn't give them a way to fundamentally ground that other than a mystery. You know, and it's interesting because he's explaining these other worldviews have more problems, but he doesn't give a really clear solution. See, Jonathan, we believe that the Bible has a clear solution to the question, are God and evil meant to coexist? And we believe the answer is yes, but not the way you think. It's not the way you think. Yes, but not the way you think. There's much more to it, and we're not giving God nearly the credit that he should be given in this philosophical conversation that we're having. So, Let's get back to the trajectory of evil in the human experience and God's mastery over that evil. Right from the entrance of sin, now we talked about the entrance of sin in, in the first segment, into human experience, a promise 
of God's favor was established. And this is going to begin to show us a pattern and a hint as to how to understand how God deals with evil. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So that's that veiled promise that says, Satan, you're going to get yours. You're going to meet with your destruction as a result of the deception that you just uh, executed in the Garden of Eden. And so there's a sense of that. Now, Satan was responsible for giving the opportunity for evil to become a practice and not just a principle. Evil as a principle being practiced was therefore allowed to grow after Adam's sin, and it took a really horrible, horrible turn. Let's jump down to Genesis chapter 6. And Jonathan, when we go from Genesis chapter 3 to chapter 6, we're actually jumping 1,600 years. So that's a lot of years in those few <laughs> chapters. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So what's the big deal here with the sons of God and the daughters of men? Well, Rick, fallen angels, uh, those that followed uh, Lucifer at first, but Satan later um, said, hey, these women are beautiful, and they materialized and mated with these women and created this uh, offspring uh, called Nephilim, which means giants on the earth. And two, two different beings coexisting, humankind and these giant mutants, that's not God's plan or his creation. No, they were not creations of God, and that's exactly the point. God had created humankind to have dominion over the earth. This was a hybrid of some kind that did not belong. So God acts to preserve the integrity of his human creation, and that's what brings the great flood. He finds one man who could deliver the human race. Genesis chapter 6, a few more verses, verses 7 through 9. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, for man to animals, to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. So it's interesting that you have God finding and using Noah, a very righteous man in a very unrighteous time, and using him to protect the integrity of his original creation. The world was created for humankind, and Noah was going to preserve that, and God was going to use him to preserve that. Well, Rick, wasn't that drastic? Couldn't he have done something else other than wipe out all living things on this planet? You know, it was drastic, and that's part of the proof that God overrides evil. He took drastic action to wipe out all evidence of that hybrid race and that commingling of, of, of levels of creation that did not belong together. So by doing so, and it's interesting, Jonathan, again, this is a side note, but in Greek mythology— you have this commingling of spirit being and fleshly being. You know, Hercules was the son of Zeus, I think, who was a god, and, and his mother, who was a human being. 
that's taken right out of the Genesis account. And it was not appropriate. It did not belong. And yes, it was drastic action. And no, God had to do that to give the human race opportunity to still navigate through evil, but to get to an eventual end that he would uh, would see as appropriate. So the garden promise, that promise that, you know, when when um, he was giving Satan his sentence, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and, you know, her, he, uh, he shall bruise you on the head, Satan, that means you're going to die. You shall bruise him on the heel. The garden promise that was made there was the first First, it was first fulfilled in Noah. Noah saved the human race by being righteous, and he was a picture of Jesus delivering the human race. He's a picture of that ultimate deliverance. So I think that's kind of a cool attachment there. That is. And so, you know, we have the sense that God does override evil, but he doesn't interfere with it altogether. Because obviously things didn't go well afterwards too, because evil still existed. So what's the solution? If evil still existed, what's the ultimate solution? Well, Rick, the solution is God's kingdom will reclaim godliness and order for the human race. God's kingdom, a future event, will reclaim order for the human race. That's a future event. And you said it earlier in this segment, Jonathan, God's plan is eternal. You got to be right. patient. You got to wait for these things to unfold. Another prophetic scripture that helps us to understand that is Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Okay, pause right there for a second, okay? Because that's a powerfully positive promise. And you can see Jesus fulfilling that. You know, you are, you are my son, today have I begotten you. Those are the words you hear speak, spoken from heaven when Jesus is baptized. That's right. Okay. And I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The ends of the earth is your possession. But remember, it's all sinful, right? It's all full of evil. Oh, it is. So let's read verse 9 then. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So I'm going to give you these things. And evil is going to have to be taken out. It's going to have to, things are going to have to be reorganized. The governmental systems are going to have to be taken down so they can be replaced with something good and something righteous and something godly. So the solution, Jonathan, is God will ultimately and forever override evil as a practice. This particular psalm tells us that. I'm giving you, Jesus, the inheritance of the world, and it will be your job to take down all of the things that are evil within it and, and allow the principle to continue to exist, but not allow it to be in practice and destroy humanity. See, to me, if we're going to talk about good and evil and God and evil, you have to be able to put on your, have to have your binoculars to be able to see way, way far out. And binoculars for us, our scriptural prophecies. So, I mean, once again, the solution looks so easy. Why not skip everything else and just get right to it? Because eternal plans take time. Years have passed from the flood to today. How else did God's plans subvert evil along the way? Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. 
It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. There are a myriad of details involved when you're putting an eternal plan into place. Each step must be specific, dynamic, and permanent so the end result of God's mastery over evil will be unmistakably seen as specific, dynamic, and permanent. There will be, at the appropriate time, there will be no room for doubt. Jonathan, now today is not the appropriate time, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> because there's lots of doubt everywhere. So, you know, we look at all of that and say, you know what? God has got this in hand. And the, the gut reaction is, oh, really? Look around, buddy. What do you see? And we can agree. What we see is not good. But it doesn't change the statement that God's got this all in hand, but the in hand will not be revealed just yet. Let's go back to quoting Quora. Again, the question was, are God and evil meant to coexist? And here's part of a comment from somebody named Isaac. But you asked my opinion. Well, I'd, I'd think that any God that did exist must be rather comfortable with what we humans call evil, since there is so very much of it in the world. Or maybe the God just doesn't give a blank either way. There is no guarantee that we aren't the cosmic equivalent of mold growing on a planet that was left to sit for too long. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what he says is, look, obviously God must be comfortable with evil because it's just there, you know, and that is a common response from a lot of people. Well, you know, God has got to be comfortable with it. He, either that or he's just not big enough or strong enough or powerful enough to do anything about it. But Jonathan, it's not that way. And when you look at parenting, you know, when we look at eternity, you know, we can't even fathom eternity. You look at parenting and you look at the periods of time when your kids may be going off track a little bit and you have to deal with things that you don't necessarily like but are willing to tolerate till you get through the lesson of those things. And those things take time. Oh, they do. With the human race, it's exactly the same thing. God is parenting the human race and allowing the rebellion of the human race to take its time and to, to go through what it needs to go through. This brings us to the third woe. Now, these three woes, remember, were given to Israel by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5. They all came true for Israel back then. But in principle, we're looking at these woes, there's six of them, and we are saying they are models of God dealing with evil and God making sure that evil will eventually be in its proper place. The third woe is what? Well, Rick, the third woe is the sin of godless irresponsibility. That doesn't sound very good. <laughs> Let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. We'll do 18 and 19, just 18 right now. Woe to those who drag iniquity. And, and Rick, that word iniquity means perversity or depravity. So woe to those who drag perversity with the cords of falsehood and sin as with a cart ropes. So dragging perversity along with you with cords of falsehood. I mean, that creates a picture of everything being being a lie, being wrong, being hypocritical, being being uh, godless. 
and sin as with cart ropes. In other words, you you put in the cart what you want to keep with you. Okay, it's and your, it's not good in this case. Right, <laughs> right. So you're dragging along sin with these ropes. It's like you're the horse pulling it along because you're going to need it later. And I'm like, what are we doing? And you look around in the world, Jonathan, and we are as godless as I can. I can't. I can't even imagine what I see. It's like, wait a minute, can that really be real? And the answer is, oh yeah, oh yeah. And we fulfill the scripture so well in the in in, in the world in which we live. So with that. God does give a result for Israel and for us. So what's the result here in this Isaiah chapter 5? Now we'll go to, well, first, let's, what's the result? Then we'll go to verse 19. Well, Rick, the result is for Israel as well as in our present day, the result is mockery of God and the time that he takes to unfold his eternal plan of eternity. Okay, what's verse 19 say? Who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. So what that verse is telling us is these individuals who drag iniquity or drag perversity and depravity with these cords of falsehood say, okay, yeah, let God show himself. You know, let, let me see. Go ahead, God. Tell me what I'm doing wrong and then I'll fix it. If you would just come down and tell me, we could have a conversation and then I'll follow your will. And Rick, that attitude is going on today all the time. Now look, some of us, there are some individuals and, and I know there are some who don't know how to get to God. And I've had conversations with those who say, you know, if he could just tell me, it would be so much easier. That's a little different than what is being described here. That is that sincere looking but not knowing how to find. This is the mockery. And and, and I'm reminded of of several past experiences back in our radio days of some who would call in who had that sense of mockery like, well, if God would just tell me, then I'd believe you. And, you know, it's it's said to make you look foolish. It's said to make God uh, a, a, a target. And that is this godless irresponsibility. We have taken all the principles of God and put them away, put them far away from us, and this is what we've got. This pulling sin along is with cart ropes, so we can't be without it. Goodness gracious, can't be without our sin. Good, what a mess. So, <laughs> let's go to another soundbite. This, and this, this is going to be sort of a three-part piece here. This is from Greg Kokel. Uh, Did God create evil? This is from STR Videos. And um, he's going to be talking about the conflict of goodness and power because a lot of people say, well, if God's so powerful, he can stop evil, you know, anytime he wants. And he, he brings up some interesting points here. It appears that there's a conflict between uh, God's goodness and God's power. If he was good, he'd want to get rid of all evil in the world. And if he is powerful, he'd be able to. But evil exists and therefore he's either not good or he's not powerful. And I think there's a misunderstanding here. I actually don't think it has anything to do with power And it has something to do with goodness, but in a different kind of fashion. God created a certain kind of world. He created a world in which there were morally free creatures. Now, I think that's a good thing. I think this reflects that God is an all-wise God. It is a good thing in the world to have creatures that are morally free, as opposed to animals for whom morality doesn't apply at all. Uh, Creatures can't be bad, but they can't be good either. So it's kind of a push there. Nothing good comes of this. Human beings can be bad and they can be good. There's a possibility for great evil, but there's a potential for great good when you have moral freedom. Now, here's the catch. 
power has nothing to do with the problem of evil given that scenario. And I think that that's an important point. Power has nothing to do with it. God does have the power to wipe it all out. God chooses not to because of the morality learning experience. If and it's the same principle of parenting. If you, if you helicopter over your children and you do everything for them and you don't let them fall and you don't let them learn how to lose and you don't let them uh, learn how to be good sports and you don't let them learn how to make an effort, they will never grow up. God is not a helicopter parent. God is giving humanity ample time and effort to be able to do what they need to do to understand evil once and for all eternity. That's creative genius. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. So thus far, we have a pattern of a promise, remember the promise in the garden, which will defeat evil as a principle which is now being practiced. Satan put it into practice, Adam and Eve picked up on it. This pattern continued, and God chose another individual to be the father of the lineage that would ultimately fulfill the plan. So now we're moving on. We were talking about Noah earlier. Now we're moving on to another individual who would be the father of a lineage that God could work with. Notice as we read the requirements for being a conduit for the subduing of evil. And make no mistake, the calling of Abraham was to have him be the conduit through which would flow the information and experience necessary to subdue evil. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we're going to break it up in pieces. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Okay, leave all that's familiar, follow strict guidance, and what you are given will become generational. So he is given... First of all, a pretty monumental task. Get up and leave. Leave everything that's familiar. Rely on me, and I will give you something, a gift, a blessing that will be generational. Verse 2. Let's start verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so God continues to tell Abram, his name's not Abraham yet, and you will receive personal and family blessing by following my guidance. And again, it comes down to, I'm not just giving it to you because I like you. I'm giving it to you because you will obey. That's where the blessing comes from. So personal and family blessing, this blessed nation would be a necessary tool to later subdue evil. And it's a process that God had to put in place. Uh, and go ahead, continue. And so you shall be a blessing. So now I'm blessing you and then you and your posterity will be passing that blessing on to other people. Let's continue with verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, Jonathan, that's a pretty comprehensive promise, isn't it? Oh, that is. It, all the families of the earth? That's to me, every man, woman, and child that ever lived. And that includes the humanity that was wiped out in the flood. That's right. It includes all of the humanity that lived on the other side of the earth while God was dealing with his chosen people who didn't even know about God. That's right. Because that's what it says. By staying focused for Abram, by staying focused on following God's plan, 
and God's will, the whole of humanity will benefit. This blessing ends up being the subduing of evil in every form of its practice. And that's what, that's what the plan of God is really all about. You've got to subdue evil once and for all for every generation. Well, Rick, you're talking about the principle of evil will always be there. Yes. And what about this concept like uh, a museum? Now, like the, the example of like the Holocaust Museum, when people go there and witness that, it changes their lives. They remember what evil and atrocities took place will never be forgotten, will it? And you know, that, that's a really, really good example because the Holocaust experience was a, was a world-changing experience. And the wisdom for setting up a memorial, that especially, I mean, there's loads of them around, but especially in Auschwitz, and I've known several individuals to go there. And they, and they come home from there, and they're just, it is embedded in their minds, the darkness of the time, and embedded to the standpoint to say, Never can we go there again. And I truly believe that the principle of evil will be memorialized in a similar way. God will take the practice out, but let the principle exist and remind us that remember that, remember the darkness, remember the pain, remember the suffering. That was all evil. So that was a great, great, great example because that's something that's tangible to us in our generation. So as we continue now, care has to be taken in following as there are examples of, quote, Christianity that are really are not examples of Christianity. Philippians 3, 17 to 20. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have told you and now tell you even weeping that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in our battle against evil individually, we have to be aware because there are those examples that claim to be following after Christ, and, and the apostle explains here that their end is destruction, their God is their appetite, their glory is in their shame because their minds are set on earthly things, and they're telling you that they're Christians with their minds set on, on heavenly things. It's not true. Be aware and walk away from such examples because we, as followers of Christ, need to follow in righteousness, godly righteousness, and nothing else. Let's get back to Craig Kukul and Did God Create Evil? And remember, you're talking about the conflict of goodness and power. He gives a, and he said, you know, power really has nothing to do with it. Now he's going to give a really very poignant example about that. Let's listen. I was in the Ukraine uh, earlier this year, and I was teaching a bunch of Christians on, on some of these issues. We were talking about the problem of evil. And there's a big burly guy in the front of the room. His name is Vitali. And uh, I said, Vitali, come on up here. I've got a paper clip. You're a big, strong guy bend this paper clip into a square. So he grabbed the paper clip and of course did a good job of bending it into a square. I said, okay, now bend this paper, paper clip into a circle. That was a little more difficult, but he, he worked with it for a little while. We got kind of the resemblance of a circle. I said, fine, you did it. Okay, now I want you to bend it into a square circle. 
Of course, he couldn't do that. He paused. This is silly. I said, why not? You're a big, strong guy, aren't you? The point is here, there are some uh, problems or some issues or some things that we're confronted with that are not susceptible to power to solve because they're a different kind of problem. And uh, Jonathan, that's a great example because right now, the evil that's in the world is not solvable just by God's power. He is not exerting his power to solve it now. His power is exerted in a different way. We don't see it. We don't understand it. It goes under the surface. And that brings us to the solution for God and evil coexisting. What's the solution? Well, Rick, the solution is God's kingdom will take the evil of godless irresponsibility, call it out, and give it context. How do we know that? Let's go to Daniel, two scriptures. First, Daniel 12, 2. And many of the sleepers in the dusty ground shall awake. These shall be to age-abiding life, but those to reproach and age-abiding abhorrence. So the godless irresponsibility, that's this third woe that was given to Israel that we're applying to our world now, says, okay, there's going to be a resurrection. and there's Okay. Um, all right, Jonathan, I'm back on Mixler. Uh, folks, I apologize. Don't know what happened. We just had a really funky thing going on here. All right, folks. Um, yeah, time to punt. <laughs> it's interesting that we're talking about good and evil and God overcoming evil. And, and then I don't know what just happened. I have no explanation other than to say... Um, we're, 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 I think everything is working. So we're going to continue with our podcast. We, I'm not sure we we're even interrupted. Uh, but the scripture in Zechariah says that the Lord of hosts, 10 men from all nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we've heard that God is with you. And it gives you a sense of accountability. The godless irresponsibility of this world and this day is such that we lose, lose our grip on all of those things but not for long, not forever. And, and Jonathan, we're going to skip that little break and go right on to the next segment. So here's the thing. If the average person could only grasp two things, they would be able to see, see hope much more clearly. Now, the two things they need to grasp are these. First, the plan of God is eternal. And you said that, and you keep saying that all along. It's eternal. Right. It it's is. going to take a long time. It, by definition, needs ample time to develop. So be patient. The second thing is subverting evil as a practice. Remember, practice versus principle. Subverting evil as a practice is a process that needs to be tested and proven at every level. You can't, so, so you've got to be hopeful because it's got to be tested, Jonathan, at the very highest heights of government and at the very lowest places where people are, are doing the things in the dark alleys of the world. And so far, Rick, we've talked about it's gone from people to a family to a nation. Yes, yes. And so God is building the subversion of evil machinery. And it went, you're right, it went from individuals to a family to a nation. So we've got to go to the next level here. Let's go to a quote from Quora. Again, the question, are God and evil meant to coexist? And this is Tim on Quora and his uh, opinion. God gives you free will. Evil exists because mankind fails to choose good over evil. Life is the endless opportunity to choose good over evil, right over wrong, kindness and patience over anger, 
goodwill over envy, temperance over gluttony, generosity over greed, love over lust, humility over pride, and activity over sloth. In doing so, you show God your true measure. Okay, so there, there's a lot of good things in there. You know, God gives free will, and we understand free will. But here's the thing, Jonathan. Here's the thing that I think most people miss, and that is that God's sense of free will is being used for a time within the context of evil reigning. But it's only going to be for a time. Once the lesson is learned, it can then be applied forever. And I think that's what we're going to see as we go through this uh, further, as God deals with evil. So the fourth woe, and again, these woes were given to the nation of Israel back in Isaiah's time. They all came true back in Isaiah's time, but we're looking at them as a basis for understanding and discussing the ways that evil comes through and how God deals with them. What's the fourth woe? Well, Rick, the fourth woe is the sin of godless morality. Okay, the sin of godless morality. Now, morality, everybody says you have to have morals. But I submit to you that godless morality is not morality. And that's where we are. Isaiah 5.20 is a good example of this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Okay, woe to those who call good evil and evil good, who turn things around and upside down and backwards and, and, and so forth. This is godless morality. When you take something that is evil and you make it good, you can, you can call it morality because it's good for me, but it is godless morality and therefore it is darkness. What's the result here, Jonathan? Well, Rick, the result is for Israel and for our day is darkened morality. They become idolatrous and we remain idolatrous. Okay. They became idolatrous. We remain idolatrous. It's really, really simple. Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Okay. What we sow to, this is a very simple, basic, godly principle, is what we reap from. If we sow to human desire, human thought, human opinion, human feeling, we're going to reap from those things. And those things are born in sin and iniquity, and therefore the result is not going to be good. The promise of God's favor, which will defeat evil as a principle which is being practiced, now develops into a written law to the chosen lineage. Remember, Abram was chosen. He was told that his family would follow in his footsteps. He had a son, Isaac. He had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons that became the nation of Israel. And now God is going to be blessing them collectively. Before we get to that, though, let's go to Psalm chapter 1, parts of verse 1 and parts of verse 2. How blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Okay, how blessed is the man who delights in God? That's the key. In a world of evil, that's where we find our solace, is to delight in God. Now, let's go back. Remember that paperclip problem? You know, with uh, he told the guy to, to make a square, and he bent it into a square, and then he bent it into a circle, and he says, okay, now make a square circle. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, again, so let, let's conclude that. Again, Greg Kokel, uh, did God create evil? 
God is all-powerful. That means he has all the power he needs to do anything that power can do, but there are some problems that power can't solve, and this is one of them. Could God, through power, remove all evil from the world today? Sure, that would be easy, but what he'd have to do is he'd have to destroy something good, and that means he would have to destroy morally free creatures. Because moral freedom just is the possibility to do evil or good. You cannot create a morally free creature that has no possibility of going south on you. This is not possible. It's like a square circle. Power has nothing to do with it. So now, you know, he makes a good point, but I believe his point falls short because the implication seems to be that, okay, God can't take care of it, you know, because he's got to let the free moral agency continue. And he will. But there's another chapter to the story that most Christians never, ever, ever open the book on. And that's where we get to the solution of all of this. What, what's the solution? Well, Rick, the solution is God's kingdom will teach and reteach the masses of risen humanity to understand the value of life lived in a godly and righteous way. Okay, so God's kingdom is going to put it all in order. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay. We're talking about an age of godless morality, the woe of godless morality. Now, that scripture you just read, Jonathan, Isaiah chapter 11, says there's no, not going to be any hurting or destroying in all God's holy mountain. Now, is he talking about a literal mountain? He's talking about the planet Earth. He's talking about the planet Earth, and mountains in Scripture are representative of governments. Of nations. Right, of That's governments. right, governments. Yep. So he's saying, when my government is in place, there will not be hurting or destroying. What that implies is there will be morality in place, strongly in place. The earth, why? What will make that morality work? He says, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So he's simply saying, the knowledge of God will be everywhere. Therefore, morality will be able to exist because you already had the experience of evil before, and now it's just about God's way, not Satan's way. And I think that's the next chapter of the story that everybody seems to forget about. And that museum of evil will always be there to remember. Yes. We'll have that touchstone that you can look at and say, remember that. And when you've got God's will and God's way and God's morality everywhere, you, there's no need, there's no sense, there's no desire for something dark that's painful because you've got goodness before you. We're going to go on to the fifth woe, the sin of idolatry of ego in a moment. Let's go to quoting another quote from Quora. Again, the question that we asked is, are God and evil meant to coexist? And this particular quote is part of what somebody named Chris said. If you are speaking about God, as in the God of the Bible, then one could argue he created evil. And if that's too much to handle, then he let evil grow and flourish without cutting it down like a weed which he could have easily done, um, by the way, could still do, yet he doesn't. So I would argue that God 
and evil not only can coexist, but that God is quite comfortable with his old friend, the devil. So, and, and again, this is a classic judgment that's based on, I'm sitting here in the world right here, right now in the year 2018. And because I don't see God overcoming evil, therefore God must not be caring about it because I don't see it. What makes me the barometer for judging God? Jonathan, so many of us do that. We judge God based on our personal experience rather than his eternal plan. And that's not the way to see God's plan. You've got to see beyond your little, tiny, teeny, tiny little life, which is significant, but it's short and it's small in relation to eternity. The fifth woe, as I mentioned, is the sin of idolatry, of the idolatry of ego, and that's in Isaiah 5, again, Isaiah 5, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Boy, that shows you the idolatry of ego. You know, I know, I'm it, and I'm pretty smart about it too. I mean, you can't catch up with me. What's the result of the sin of the idolatry of ego? Well, Rick, the result is personal or group ego as a centerpiece is always a recipe for taking a darkened morality and making it the standard of what is looked at as right. And Rick, the Pharisees are a good example of this. So the sin of the idolatry of ego doesn't just have to be personal ego. It can be group ego as well. It can be me and my friends and everybody who agrees with me is right and everybody else is wrong and we're going to show them. And if they don't see it, it's too bad for them because we've got it. We got to be careful of that. Israel wasn't careful for that and they got, and they, they, they punished, they lost as a result. And the Pharisees had Jesus in front of them and yet they couldn't get past their own group ego. They're, we're the ones in charge, not him. Who does he think he is? And it's a shame because you miss big things when you're stuck in pride. Proverbs sixteen eighteen describes that to us. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So you get the sense that pride is part of evil. Go back to Satan. It was that pride. You go every step of the way, pride plays a part in evil. So the promise of God's favor and the defeating of evil as a principle being practiced was completely displayed in the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is inspiring because he fulfilled the law. We had talked about the law being given uh, as, as the next step in the previous woe. And now we're talking about Jesus taking that law and fulfilling it and earning the right to be able to ransom Adam. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so, you know, the scripture gives us a sense of the author, the perfecter of our faith. He is the... He had enlightened morality and selfless discipline, and the, the ego thing wasn't there, and that's how he was able to do what he did. So the solution for this fifth woe of the sin of idol the idolatry of ego is what? Well, Rick, the solution is God's kingdom will provide unadulterated truth, and the people will flock to it. And we can see that, again, Unadulterated truth, that is a powerful, powerful concept. Uh, we can see that expressed to us in Zechariah chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, 
Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and many nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. You see, there's that egoless perspective there because the inhabitants will go to one another and say, hey, let's go. Let's go be blessed by God. Let's go. Let's all go together. It's not my group and your group. It's let's go see and see the blessing of God. And nations will seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, the capital of the world to be. That's the egoless way that God will overcome evil. So when you look at this whole thing and and you try to put it in perspective, it took 4,000 years to get to Jesus and it took another 2,000 years since. That's true. But we now have it all together. With Jesus as the final puzzle piece in the subverting of evil as a practice, how does it all end? We're uncovering the truth scripture by scripture while gathering information from across today's media landscape with our vast CQ team of contributors. We want to hear from you, our listeners, for more contribution to our conversations. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or message us through the Christian Questions app and our producers may read your comments over the air. Let's continue working through our topic with all our tools. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together. The end to this story appropriately picks up the lost threads of the beginning when God created man in his image. That creative process was used to give the human race life, eternal life, within the earthly realm under the powerful, guiding, just, wise, and loving hand of God. It will be so. It will happen. Evil will fall from favor and cease to be practiced and be just a principle. Why? Because God said so. One more quote from Quora about the question, are God and evil meant to coexist? From someone named Kelly. God did not create evil. James 1.17 says that evil, that every good gift and every perfect present is from above, coming down from the Father of the celestial lights. There is inherited sin, but evil is a different ball of wax. And again, the principle of evil existed. God presented the principle to Adam in the garden by way of the knowledge of the tree of the good and evil. Didn't tell him to go do it, or practice it, but he said, here is this tree that has the knowledge of acknowledged evil. The principle existed for a reason. Satan took that principle, he put it into practice, and now the world is stuck in that practice, and we can see the results. It's pretty, pretty bad. The final woe fits exactly into this. And again, these were the woes given to Israel in, in Isaiah chapter 5. They came true in, Isra- in Israel's day back then. But the key is, how can we learn about how God deals with evil now from those woes? What's the sixth one? Well, Rick, the sixth woe is the sin of lawlessness. And when you get to lawlessness, there's really not too much further you can go, okay? (laughs) For sure. (laughs) All right, Isaiah chapter 5, verses, let's do verses 22 and 23 to start. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. So again, it goes back to those who... um, you know, with the, with the wantonness, if you will, of, of excessive behavior. 
And what he's saying in Isaiah is that excessive behavior will breed justifying the wicked for a a bribe. It will breed taking away the rights of the ones who are in the right and giving them to others who are not. It will breed an upside-down and backwards world from the goodness and godliness that was originally there. So evil has its way. And you say, you know, it's terrible. How come God doesn't stop it? He is. He is. He is. What's the result? Well, Rick, the result is inevitable chaos, anarchy, and destruction. Evil cannot avoid these things as it has no higher conscience than the power of the moment, the strength of the trend or the influence of the masses. And see, that's the key That's the difference. That's what we have to focus on. Evil has no higher conscience than the moment or the trend or the people and what everybody seems to want at the moment. You know, mass hysteria does pretty terrible things, Jonathan. You never hear about mass hysteria uh, building a wall or saving a house or delivering people. No. So There's no godly compass in that environment right exactly exactly precisely there's no compass and because of that it leads to destruction and in isaiah chapter 5 god lays out the consequences of this sin of lawlessness so let's do chapter 5 verses 24 and 25 therefore as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame so their root will become like rot and their blossom blown away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people, and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. So... There's a, there's a lot of prophetic things that happen. And again, Israel did fall apart pretty dramatically there. But it talks about the grass that, that collapses into flame. Uh, the roots just rot away. The blossom blows away as the dust. Uh, they've rejected the law. There's nothing good left. And that's what evil produces. And Jonathan, we are living at a time where we're really beginning to see some of the biggest, highest, strongest, most powerful evidences of the power of evil. And you say, well, where is God in all this? And the answer is right here. Just wait. Just watch. Because he has control over the situation. And it's got to run its course. Yes. And, and it's going to make its final debut until <laughs> we're sick of it and don't want anything to do with it again. And, and, and you're right. Running its course, that is a scriptural concept that you can follow. And, and oftentimes, you know, God would talk about um, uh, evil coming to the full. And it takes three or four generations for that to happen. And when it does, boy, it happens in a big way. So what we are witnessing is evil running its full course. Why? Because God needs to let it happen. Why does God need to let evil reign? Because evil has to become so despicable in the minds of man that once they are raised from the dead, they will look back on it with, with that sick feeling in their stomach saying, never, just like the Holocaust Museum, never, never go 
go back to that world. Never. Let's go to a different soundbite here. This is from Dr. Ravi Zacharias. How could an all-powerful God allow evil? And he gives a really interesting example, a physical true example of a human being with a very, very specific malady. Listen closely to this. There's a young gal in Georgia where I live. I live in Atlanta. And uh, she, uh, her first name is uh, Ashlyn. And uh, one day her mother was on a television program discussing a strange problem that she has, which is called SIPA, congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. She cannot feel pain and her sweat glands don't work. The problem may sound good, you don't feel any pain. But the reality is, if she steps on a nail while she's on the sports field, it could puncture the skin, create an infection, and nobody could be even aware of it. The mother said the problems it has created in her life for what this malady brings into her body. She says, I pray one prayer every night. God, please let my daughter help to feel pain. And that sounds so strange. Please let my daughter feel pain. As parents, we want our children to not have to experience pain. You're right. But the point is, without the ability to experience the pain, we, we are left without protection. And the experience of evil is that pain that needs to be felt and understood so it can be further avoided. Now, the promise of God's favor uh, and the defeating of evil as a principle that's being practiced is now complete. We have gone through the beginning stages. You know, we started with a little bit of a promise in the garden. Then we went to Noah, that righteous man who through, through that God used to, to carry goodness and righteousness in an evil world. Then we went to Abram, who became Abraham, who had his sons, as, uh, that became the nation of Israel. God dealt with that nation of people. They were given a law, and, the, and here's the thing, and we didn't really talk about this, the law labeled what evil looked like. That's right. It defined it. It did very clearly. And it told them, stay separate. Don't get involved in all of that. Stay separate. Here's what you need to do. And it, it elevated them. Now they fell short many times. And Isaiah, we're using the Isaiah scriptures as proof of their falling short. But then you had Jesus come along and fulfill that law as a perfect man and then sacrifice his life for the original sin of Adam so that all of us could now be looking at this and saying, wow. There's opportunity for life again the way God originally started it in a perfect environment. That's where we're going. So we went through all of those things, and what we're going to do now is look at what that kingdom actually looks like and feels like. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And one thing, Rick, a perfect environment with experience behind it. Okay. All right. And after you read this scripture, we're going to go back to that exact thought. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not let be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And a perfect environment with experience behind it. Remember, God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. So evil began as a powerful and unused principle. It was there. Evil has since been used. 
So now, this kingdom that was just described in Daniel 2.44 in the days of those kings, this kingdom will be set up that will never be destroyed. It will end all of the other kingdoms on earth because it will overrule them in a higher, more righteous way. That kingdom will be based on evil as a powerful once-used principle. Once-used. Now, granted, for 6,000 years, once-used, but used once so that the inhabitants of that kingdom can understand the value of the whole thing. Evil as a principle being practiced is destined for utter failure in its practice as a result of this process. That's the beauty of God dealing with evil. Let's go back to that, that, uh, that uh, Dr. Ravi Zakaria soundbite about the young woman who could not feel pain. Here's his a conclusion. She could put her hand on a burner and not know that her hand is burning. Now my question is this, if in our finite existence we can see the role of pain to warn us that something is wrong, is it impossible for God in his infinite wisdom to allow pain in our lives to help us know that something is wrong? Pain is spelt with moral connotations in the human framework. That is because we are moral beings. Therefore, the answer has to come from within a moral spiritual framework as well. The question assumes moral reasoning, and that can only be assumed if God is in the paradigm, not, in paradigm, not outside of it. So he, he makes a great case for the necessity of pain. And again, we, we agree with that to, to a specific point. But for most of us, Jonathan, we don't bring the case to its logical conclusion from a scriptural standpoint. We say, yes, God allows pain in this world because morality and goodness has to have an opportunity to rise up. We agree, absolutely, positively, but this world is not the end of it. This world is just the, the, the experience of it. The end comes through the solution. And with each of these woes and each of the results of these woes, there's always a solution and it's always the same thing. What's the solution here? Rick, the solution is God's kingdom will utterly tame all chaos through righteousness, will destroy all anarchy through godly justice, and will end all destruction through mercy and love. Evil will again become an unused principle that will have been once used, but no longer used because it will have done its work. It will have accomplished a mission. Believe it or not, evil, there's a mission for evil, and that is to present itself for what it truly is. Darkness, godlessness that leads to anarchy and sin and pain and suffering and death and destruction. Once it, the, it like you said, comes to its maturity, God takes it over and God puts it again on the shelf, having been used once, and now we come to the picture of what we will see. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. We're going to go through this little piece at a time. Folks, picture this as the end result of God working through evil. you Letting evil do its thing until it's time to cut it off. And now here's what you get. Micah 4, uh, let's start with verses, uh, verse 1. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains 
it will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Again, when we look at mountains, mountains are pictures of governments. The governments. So it says, the mountain of the house of God will be the chief of all the mountains in the earth, raised above everything else, and the people will be streaming to it. So what you have, what does that describe to you, you know, in terms of, go ahead. Well, Rick, firm, clear, and a powerful government. Okay, so it's firm, it's clear, it's powerful, and the people are streaming to it. So it's obviously got some popularity going on there. There's something attractive about this setup. Uh, next verse, uh, verses uh, 2 and, uh, two, well, verse 2. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. From, for from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So not only is this government firm and clear and powerful, it's communicating and it's righteous and it's, and it's people sensitive. I mean, think about that. Let's continue verse 3. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty, distant nations. So not only is it communicating and righteous, it's just. This is everything, Jonathan, everything anybody ever wished to have in a government. Just on top of all these other things. And then one of the most famous scriptures in the Bible, what is it? Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they train for war. And that adds up to a peaceful government. And verse 4 gives you the sense of what it produces. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So it's a government by God, through Jesus, and for the people. That is what the government will look like that is what it means to have a government in place where evil is only again a principle once used learned from put aside to never go back to again are god and evil meant to coexist absolutely but evil will only be a principle god reigns through jesus and truly, they all live happily ever after in a godly, righteous way. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. We certainly have enjoyed talking to you about God and evil, very philosophical discussion about something that should bring us great, great hope. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we'll be back again next week. But until then, God and evil, God wins. Think about it. Folks, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback. Send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us, review us. We greatly appreciate it. Next week, are your treasures really worth treasuring? We'll talk to you then.